Hey fellas, this is Left Porch, the podcast hosted weekly by Michael Wilson and Rado Stokitsa from Borden Labor Alliance. Just a heads up, this episode was recorded a while ago, so you might hear some snippets that might give away the impression that this podcast was unnamed where we didn't really know the direction of it. We more or less decided by now. But bear with us, there might be some of those episodes coming up soon, we have a lot of work to do, so please stick with us, we promise, we'll always deliver the top quality content. Solidarity, and please enjoy this episode. Okay, I think it's working. Hello, 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 everyone. My name is Radu Stokitsa, also known as Stok. I'm a student at, Bo- at Boden, part of the Boden Labor Alliance. And today I have with me my very beautiful and very devoted partner in crime here, whose name is... Uh, it's Micah, Micah Wilson. Uh, I'm also a student at Boden um, and a member of the Boden Labor Alliance here at Stock. Um, I'm, I'm recording here from South Portland, Maine. Um, meanwhile, stock, it's, uh, it's only three o'clock here for me, but it's, uh, 10 o'clock for you. Where are you at? Stock? It's 10 PM. Yeah. It's 10 PM currently in Romania recording from a bedroom more precisely, <laughs> trying to keep it as quiet as possible since my parents are trying to fall asleep after a day of work for both of them. Very important Actually. for our podcast. <laughs> and this is, um, we agreed on it of, of being unnamed for the moment, but to give people a general sense, maybe to our friends who will be the only listeners in the beginning. This is a pilot program of a podcast Micah and I are starting that will be with other Bowdoin Labor Alliance members, as well as with other people from the outside community and from the outside world, mostly focused on labor, labor issues, and stuff that concerns the workers and the working class. So I was just about to ask you this question. I was, you know, so a week has passed since our last attempt of recording the podcast, and in those seven days, have you managed to read anything, let's say, interesting, anything that really got your attention about labor or something that you can relate to work or labor itself? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question, Zach, because it's obviously something that's like always on our mind, but like it sort of seeps into the background um, if we're not like conscious about it. Um, I don't know about reading specifically other than classes, but I, I think one thing that stuck out for me um, uh, I'm, I'm Jewish, and, and yesterday um, was uh, one of the high holy days, Yom Kippur, um, where it's uh, traditional to fast for the for the day, starting the night before. Um, and for for me, this has been something that I've been like thinking about how I want to like reincorporate into my like adult Jewish identity. It's not something I like traditionally like observe that religiously as a, as a young person, and I'm curious about doing that now, but as a student, uh, and as a, someone who's also working, like the, the Jewish tale of Yom Kippur is like very much about taking time to, to stop and to, to reflect, um, to stop working. Mm. Um, and, uh, okay. and so it put, it puts me in a sort of, uh, a, a, a situation where I have to think about like, how do I want, uh, what, what am I going to actually stop and, what am I going to sort of like say, like, actually it's like, I'm going to keep going on with my sort of day-to-day routine. Um, and, you know, 
but Yom Kippur is a much more serious holiday in the Jewish tradition um, than, than a lot of others. It's about like atonement for your sins and reflecting on things that you want to improve upon and let go of. Um, but, you know, the Jewish tradition also has a day for this in every week, which is Shabbat, um, which is really a deliberate time of every week to be able to stop, reflect and rest um, and stop work. And I think for me, something that's important about Shabbat that I think is equally important I found about Yom Kippur is just that um, it's only with good rest and reflection that we can do good work. Uh, And for me, no matter sort of what you end up taking to do in, in lieu of that work, in lieu of that sort of routine that you have, um, it's always going to make the work that you do after better. It's going to make um, yourself feel like whole and make you feel just like uh, to, to be able to like give yourself more to um, the actual work. And so I think for me, it was like a really nice moment to sort of reflect and stop and say like, I'm actually not going to do my classes today. I'm like not going to do reading all morning. Um, and, uh, and just like commit to stopping. Um, and that felt really good. Um, so that's a little thing I'm, about my, I'm happy my to week. That. Yeah. I'm happy that it felt really good to do that. I think so, so often we blame ourselves when we take that break that required, I don't know, eight hours even. I'm not even talking about an entire day. We must feel so bad about ourselves because, you know, social media is just screaming at us with work, work, work. And sometimes it's screaming at us with advertisements about relaxation, but as we talked last time, this relaxation is mostly meant as a break from work to make you more productive for work. But right. it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I'm, I'm glad I took this holiday, to be honest. I don't know if we have something. My my religious upbringing, I'm, I was not, I'm not very religious. My parents weren't either. But as many other Romanians, I was baptized in the Romanian Orthodox Church, which is a, which is a sect. I would call it a sect. Maybe it's a far stretch here. It's, it's almost like a pagan religion in a sense, very different from the traditional Christianity you would imagine. We have Sunday and the, the main, let's say, the main celebrations or the main holidays as days of rest, which is something that people usually take. So, for example, my father would not work during those days. I mean, if he had a job, he would do it because it's like legally bonded. But, for example, if he must <laughs> fix the roof, he won't do it. And he associated that with the idea of the punishment, like... God gave you those days to relax and you are using them instead to work, which is bad. Interesting, we don't necessarily keep them anymore, my, the younger generation, unless you are very, mm-hmm. tradi- very religious, let's say it. But on the question of what I read this week as well, I, I would like to actually give a little bit of a shout out to this program at MIT. It's called Comparative Studies. It's a graduate program, but they offer some online webinars quite on a weekly basis almost. And I remember tuning in to one of them, I think, two weeks ago about this book called Failure to Disrupt, which is a book about how technology hasn't yet managed to replace education in its traditional sense, as we imagine nowadays, like professors and teachers in classrooms, pupils and students at the desks, you know, receiving and giving homework in person and grading in person and grading on an individual basis. And the main argument of this book was actually quite fascinating, was that for so long, the idea of professorship and the labor associated to it has been, let's say, has been challenged by some, let's say, entrepreneurs, some people that had enough, like, courage, being good courage or bad courage, 
to disrupt the industry and to imagine or foresee a different future. They are not always educator, educators, very, very seldom they're actually educators because some of the biggest platforms we have for massive online courses or MOOCs, as they call them, that we can take you know, for free or for 50 bucks a month or something, were actually developed by computer engineers, not by educators. And that tells us a lot. And the dreams of so many of those were that, you know, one day we won't necessarily have to be in the classroom again, and we, we could all of us take the classes from the comfort of our home. That sounds amazing, yet the labor that goes behind that is often unseen. You know, it's just completely mm -hmm. invisible. And people don't really talk about how disruptive that can be to people, you know, that teach classes in person and how those in-person classes are quite beneficial. So I think that I think that was the thing. That was the thing that mostly preoccupied my mind this week with labor. I would recommend everyone, Failure to Disrupt, there is a book club meeting weekly and you can find more about it on MIT, Comparative Studies website. And with that being said, I think we should, should we jump in and some news of, from labor, from the labor world this week and then we can go into California fires? Yeah, yeah, no, that, 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 that sounds good. I, I want, one thing that made me think of really fast though, Stock, was uh, mm -hmm. about the transitioning to sort of like non-in-person uh, learning and education is just like mm. uh, some, something I think we'll probably, we might be able to talk to a future, a future guest about. There's, a, there's a, a professor of labor studies at Middlebury named Jamie McCallum, who we're hopefully having mm -hmm. on the podcast uh, in a couple of weeks, who has been writing a lot about um, what COVID has done to the university and to the way we interact with uh, like online teaching, in-person teaching, and sort of like that unseen mm. labor that you're talking about, Stock. So yeah, but hit us Very with some excited. news. What's, what's going on? We should hold the momentum from that because I have a lot of things to say. I think there's cool. a lot to be said about privatization, but we should be yes. shush, yeah. for now and just continue <laughs> next time when we get Jamie as well. But with regards to news, actually, let me just pull, take my collection out of news, which I we have managed to collect five of them just so we could keep this, let's say, short enough, and we could also get that required dosage of what has been happening in the labor world. One of the few things that really gotten my attention was uh, a couple of days ago, I was just waiting for some friends to come and pick me up, and I opened the Economist app. Since I got a very discounted edition, I don't know, like a couple of dollars for six months or something like this. It's a, you don't have to apologize for reading the Economist stuff. <laughs> I don't have to apologize, no. I, I, lo I love reading across ideologies, to be honest. So Wall Street Journal and the Economist are my daily takes. And there is this beautiful graph which, they, which they've published, which is uh, under the article called Unemployed People Sleep Worse Than Workers on September 23rd. And it actually made me think so much, so, so much about the effects of unemployment that often go under the radar. We talk so much about how unemployment, let's say, doesn't allow you to put good food on the table, you know, because you don't have the required money to do that, you know, which you need to purchase the food. Yet there are so many, let's say, psychological, almost pathological implications that not having a stable job, not even stable, not having a job actually poses. And one of them, I think, is this increased sense of anxiety that at the end of the day either keeps you very awake at night, which makes the unemployed people sleep worse, or in many cases, as the graph shows, it makes them sleep more than the average American. It makes them sleep more by far. And I think, you know, you could make the argument from a very conservative standpoint, yes, they're lazy, that's why, that's why they're not getting a job. Look at how much they actually sleep. Or you could look in a more understanding, I think, position and try to look at it in the way that 
when you are anxious, and I think all of us had a moment like this in our life, we are either escaping it by distracting ourselves from even falling asleep by the fear of falling asleep and knowing, letting our brain think, or we go to sleep just to stop all the thinking. I think there have been those two major approach when anxiety kicks in. And it's quite mm. fascinating to see that the Economist has published this, you know, being quite a, let's say, almost a conservative newspaper and has raised some critics, some criticism about how actually unemployment has such a huge emotional toll on people and how it can affect, mm-hmm. you know, the lack of sleep affects everything, you know, relationships, mm-hmm. learning capabilities, adaptation in society and so on and so forth. And how just that job, that loss of the job can cause so many problems in someone's life. Wow. It, it sounds like you're sort of getting at that baseline anxiety that is true for uh, for workers uh, in high level and like sort of like the, those higher like white collar jobs and also for the unemployed, right? Sort of a baseline anxiety that plays out in different ways, but it's true in both cases. That's very true. It's a lot of anxiety. And I think we can couple this anxiety with the next article I would like to recommend, which is pack a go bag a go bag in quotation marks by the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And it's the article that appeared on the 23rd of September, which is actually focusing on something we will talk about very soon, which are the California wildfires. Back a go bag is about a sense of anxiety and an idea of living, of always being prepared to leave when a disaster happens. The article is mostly written about living when wildfires are taking place. So you can have, you know, let's say the fires are spreading, the smog is coming or the, or the black smoke, and you must leave, you must you must. But this idea of you must leave and you must and you should pack a go bag, there is a huge privilege behind it. And people should understand that it is not often for, let's say, the poor people that can afford to have a go bag, that can actually afford, you know, to leave somewhere else or all of this. Because I was just listening a couple of days ago to this fact, and this was astonishing to me that there are people in the US that do not have identity cards, which for Romanians is something you get for free at the age of 14. Or I think you pay a small fee. You know, at the age of 40, everyone gets a card. But people don't have ID cards because they don't have a car. And I was just thinking about that. So they don't have ID cards. They don't have a car. What if they're in California right now and they should get out of the hazard zone? Is it even possible for them to do that? Can they even have the privilege of thinking to, you know, pack a go bag that includes a certain type of aspirin, a certain type of that, a certain type of blanket? And an amount, let's say, food for days. That's what they're saying. It must include food for days. And we we know that this is something that not all people afford. People even like buy food from one day to another due to the loss of money and to the you know the the, the let's say the belittling of their of their income that has been happening in the past in the past weeks or months. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what, when was that article from? Was that like in the last couple of weeks? Right now. It's 23rd of September. I think it's exactly, it's it's almost a week ago. It's a week ago, yeah. yeah. And, and they, they bring in things like the more you plan, the more you prepare for an emergency, the more mental space you have to deal with the things you need to improvise when the emergency hits. This was by someone at the Disaster Research Center. And they said that if you get separated from a kid, you know, you need to leave them the medicine that they need to take. Don't keep the medicine in your own bag. You know, a, a lot of good good advice. And I think, yeah, as directed at the people that will, will read the New York Times, people that maybe have some kind of stability in their life and afford. Right. But with that, we you know, we must always keep that mental note that there will be people that won't even have the privilege, you know, to think of packing a go bag. And we will never be able to think of the homeless as having a go bag. Because with the homeless mobility, it's quite, it's quite hard often even to leave, you know, 
the city or a certain area of the city. No, so of course, it's, for it's like restricted. Sorry, no, go ahead. No, 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 exactly. I mean, it just made me, it made me think of when uh, when COVID struck originally, the calls for shelter in place. Uh, wh- what does shelter in place mean if you if there is no shelter that you have, there's no home that you have to go back to, right? Uh, it's a it's a call that is meant to be universal, but by nature of uh, the system can't can't be and isn't um, right. That's this idea very true. That, you know, no, that is very true indeed. It's it's a privilege. You know, I I believe you know a great deal of people afford to have this, and they're thinking at then maybe even making sacrifices for it, but there is still that percentage of people we cannot just ignore, and regardless of their decisions or whatever has happened in their life, we cannot just leave them behind and think that okay, you know, we'll have sacrifices, it's normal. I kind of hate that argument, you know. You know, I really hate it when people say, yeah, it's just normal, it's a crisis, people will suffer. And I think it normalizes and it really simplifies lots of things. You know, it just says that whatever happens, it will happen. And and it's actually transition to a new piece of news is de Blasio, again from The Economist, the mayor. uh, De Blasio, is it the mayor in New York City? Am I getting it right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I got it right. The blood gets a D in reopening New York schools. So New York school system has been has been something fascinating, I think, for labor people, labor fascinated people, labor leaders in the past weeks. A couple of weeks ago, what happens is that the leader of the union of teachers decided that he will go on strike if they reopen the schools on the set date initially, which I think was the 1st of September or a certain date. To be more precise about that, it is illegal for public workers to go on strike. And he said at that time, and I'm citing a Forbes article, I think it was, I, I forgot the title of it, but you can find it in Forbes about New York City school strike, like threatened strike. They've been saying that we are not afraid of prison. We'll go on strike if it's required for us to go. We're not going to throw our teachers and our kids in school. So find a better way to think about reopening the schools. Because reopening, you know, doesn't have the same definition as it had, I don't know, five, six, nine months ago. It must not be only physical. And uh, de Blasio, you know, uh, now they're they're opening up the schools. Not all of them are in person, but some of them are mixed. There are some of them are hybrid. But even before the reopening, 65 teachers have already been infected at 100 schools before those reopening. And this poses even more questions because... You cannot just think of COVID as you are infected, you're a number, okay, the story is finished, they'll, they'll take you out of school and they'll bring in someone new. I think you must think about the labor that goes into like taking care of you, even the financial costs, and since we live in a, in a country like the United States where we must think everything in terms of money and how much money it actually costs to take care of someone, bring them back, you know, and try to make them readjust the system again, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I think will be a huge turmoil. Totally, totally. And meanwhile, and meanwhile, the private schools in New York City uh, decided to just defer reopening for about a month. Some of them, I think, are going back in early October coming coming up. Um, but, you know, it was just saying, essentially, like, well, let's see how the public schools goes. Um, and Whoa. then we'll basically like learn from that. Um, and, Whoa. you know, I mean, it, it struck me as like, a pretty glaring sign of like, the kind of a capacity they have. Uh, to you know, yeah. to pay people to be able to like, uh, to stay home and to be able to like do remote, um, and allow the public schools to basically serve as sort of a guinea pig. 
Wow, so so interesting. I mean, this is another example of I was listening a couple of days ago again to another podcast. I think it was by the Wall Street Journal. It was the journal by Wall Street Journal in which they were saying this idea that businesses for so long have been benefiting from public goods and entrepreneurs have been and tech giants have been and they just don't give enough credit. And I think this is another example in which they benefit from public goods again, from research done on public goods. We're trying to see how COVID strikes. Yeah. So then they could actually think of readjusting or not. Right. And then they'll be able to take uh, the new spotlights by saying, uh, look at the amazing reopening that we as a private school did, right? This is our school. Bowdoin actually has has been on like ABC recently, I think, um, being able to sort of flaunt their like strategic, like well-planned reopening. Um, I didn't know that. It's just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> didn't know that well wow that's interesting actually i didn't know that we we made it there to nbc or abc which one is it sorry i'm gonna find it here we'll come back to it come back to it <laughs> okay we'll come we'll come back to this very interesting never never knew about this but the last the last piece of news actually which i think it's it's something beautiful that must be honored it comes from w let's say wvva.com which i think is west virginia something i'm sorry i cannot really see the news source completely now and it says U.S. labor movement leader recognized a new portrait at exhibition coal mine. And John L. Lewis was a president of United Mine Workers from 1919 to 1960, a driving force for coal miner and industrial worker rights. The labor leader was responsible for organizing millions of industrial workers during the Great Depression that led to the election of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, so FDR as we know it. And someone actually gives a quote who says, he was such an influential person in coal that a lot of families would have three pictures hanging above their fireplace. John L. Lewis, the person whose the article is about, Jesus, and uh, <laughs> President Roosevelt, explains so far. Very beautiful way of commemorating someone. Very beautiful, I think, uh, ways of giving of giving credits, you know, to the heroes that unfortunately are not always seen. I think being a hero of labor has not been something we've been usually you, we've been accustomed with. You know, people talk about presidents, people talk about heroes of war and stuff like this, but heroes of the labor movement we don't really hear in the public discourse. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad John Lewis was honored. I'm glad this article came up. I think also not only in this WVVA.com, but I think also <coughs> in labor notes or in labor union report some some let's say labor reporting news agencies or newspapers and i hope that you know his memory will continue to be cherished and mm -hmm. long lived as all the other coal miners unionizers as well they their memory must be carried on awesome thanks for bringing those news stories stock is that is that what we got are we going to california or do you have a couple more I think I think we should go to California. I'm very intrigued about what you prepared because California has been on my radar lately. But I'm very curious what you think of it and the fires. Awesome. Uh, well, I'll I'll jump in. Um, I I first want to recommend um, everyone listen to a pretty good interview with Mike Davis, um, who is a uh, a historian, environmentalist, and urban historian um, who's done a lot of research. And writing about California, um, but he was just interviewed on Jacobin Radio um, behind the news. I, I think um, a couple weekends ago. Um, so he has a really good in-depth, um, like <laughs> well-researched take. And so this is really just skimming the surface. Um, but you know, so for for folks who have been following the news uh, in California in particular, but you know, along with Oregon and Washington State, um, uh, 
the last month has been characterized by extreme heat waves and extreme wildfires. Um, and there's a lot of important angles to cover related to these topics, um, namely climate change. And I think that's one that the media has, like, by and large, done a better than average job at covering. Um, you know, talking about the close relationship between climate change and the increasing frequency of wildfires. Um, you know, California has not only seen longer and hotter summers um, and thus longer fire seasons due to climate change, um, but um, as Mike Davis goes into a lot more in depth in this podcast, he talks about how um, there are these invasive uh, and, and much more uh, and much more fire uh, prone weeds that have been influenced um, a lot of the fires that have burned um, in areas like Fresno and the Sierras. Um, but I'm sure as you, as I have, like you've probably seen the images from the New York times and from, if you have any friends in the Bay area, the sort of like apocalyptic orange skies um, filled with smoke that are like blocking, totally blocking out the sun. Um, and, you know, the point is well taken um, that climate change is a pretty essential uh, element of thinking about the wildfires in California. But one of the worst weeks of the fires and the heat waves in California was actually Labor Day weekend. Um, temperatures in Los Angeles reaching up to the 120s. Uh, stock, I did the calculation. It's uh, almost 50 degrees Celsius. Um, almost 50 degrees Celsius. Yeah, 48.9. Yeah. Um. Oh my God, man. <laughs> so this is combined, this is on top of. Um, extreme wildfires. Um, but I, I just want to point that out because I think it's important because um, one of the more overlooked angles about this news story about the fires in California is really about the people who are putting them out. Um, the firefighters who are putting their lives on the line doing the incredible physical labor in this extreme heat. Um, and so I just want to talk a little bit about sort of that labor um, that's going on behind the scenes of the California extreme wildfires. Um, I have a question before you go on, if you don't mind. In your research, what have you seen to be like, let's say, the predominant topic that was uh, uh, written about in the written press or even in the podcast? Yeah, I mean, I think climate change was the overwhelming one. Um, some of it's about health, like public health um, has been a huge one because with extreme heat combined with wildfires, um, you can't really open the windows with the smoke. Uh, and a lot of California residents don't have air conditioners. Um, and so they're, they're basically like suffocating inside um, because you can't get any breeze in because you'll just bring smoke into the house. So public health has been an important one. Climate change, obviously. Um, and I think these are all important. Like I don't mean to sort of like overlook those. Um, and when it comes to labor, uh, there has been some written. It's about written about sort of the relationship between COVID and um, the workers and the firefighters. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit because I think that's important. But it's definitely been overshadowed um, by these other angles that have looked at the fires. Um, so this, the wildfires in California are put out um, pretty much uh, in, in historically in large part by prison labor. Um, and it's important, I think, to revisit um, whenever these com conversations resurface. Um, so actually, due to the pandemic, um, the role of prison labor um, has changed slightly. Um, but I think I'll, I'll first sort of go into the way it has, has historically played. Um, and then maybe talk a little bit about what this change means um, for exposing some ongoing crises 
that I think we're seeing. So California has relied uh, for many decades on prison labor uh, to put out fires. Um, and the program started during World War II um, when state firefighters were actually sent off to war um, and states actually deployed prison inmates originally to fight fires in their place. Um, several other states aside from California have similar programs, but California by far deploys the most um, prison inmates by any of, an, of any state in the U.S. at least. Um, so those inmates who are putting out the fires um, work grueling hours like over 24 hours straight, over 48 hours straight in some cases. Um, and they're working in these like very remote locations. They are like sleeping outside um, and they're sleeping like next to fires in like covered in smoke. Um, and the average worker, the average prison inmate who's working to put out firefighters is paid uh, about $1 an hour. Um, $1 some of them as low as, yeah, $1. Um, some of them as low as like 45 cents an hour because they're also paying off restitution. Um, yeah. So that's the reality of what uh, that labor looks like. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, okay, and, and, and I'm after, sure the argument behind it is just that, yeah, their prisoners have done bad stuff. You know, we can pay them just 10% of the minimum wage or whatever the minimum wage is in California. But $1, man. I mean, it's kind of the same argument used to justify slavery, which it essentially is, um, you know, like in, in, in like, you know, the amendments, uh, basically abolishing slavery was obviously written in, um, that this clause that allows for, um, slave uh, labor essentially to the exception, um, is in, unless you are imprisoned, um, you can sort of work akin in work akin to slavery. Um, and it's just, it's essentially what's happening here. And sort of the $1, the 45 cents, it's, it doesn't mean much of anything, especially because when those prisoners are released, um, they can't find those same jobs working as firefighters, which are often unionized and often like have like, okay pay. It's not the best obviously, but it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's minimum wage, if not more, um, for being a firefighter, but they can't, these former inmates can't actually uh, qualify for those jobs frequently because there's really strict laws criminalizing and locking out former co- uh, former convicts from those job markets. Um, well, well, there there is a lot to digest there. I have to say, you know, I I think one of maybe the common arguments would be, yeah, they're in prison, they should be working. Okay, we can leave that argument maybe for an episode in prison and stuff. But mm-hmm. the fact that you've been doing this job and you were able to do it while in prison. Why can't you do it when you're outside of prison? You know, because we must think of prison as some kind of rehabilitation service, mm-hmm. not not as something that's just like punishing you because we've been having years of research that, that doesn't really work. And mm-hmm. it turns, let's say, people that already have some kind of deviational behavior into, into more deviationists. And I think we need to rehabilitate them. And, you know, yeah, giving them some employment could be good for rehabilitating. But don't cut that short when they exit prison. You know, try to offer them some chances. But it seems that it's not. It's just, like, so hypocritical. Exactly, exactly. And I think um, there's a historian named Kelly Lytle Hernandez who actually came out with a book a couple years ago named City of Inmates, which does a really great job sort of doing a long sort of term historical analysis of the earliest prisons that were developed in cities like LA, um, which has like the highest prison population in the world. Um, 
and what sort of how those original laws that uh, put people in prisons um, were really meant to criminalize everyday life. And so what we're seeing here is like the sort of aftermath of that, whereby folks who are criminalized by whatever, it could be a traffic offense. It could be, it could be uh, something as, 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 as small that puts you in, that puts you in jail for some amount of time um, gives you uh, this sort of stamp that, you know, Michelle Alexander talks about in her book um, that blocks you out of job markets and attaining any sort of like upward mobility after you're in prison. So, um, and the only exception is when the governor calls a state of emergency. And so this is one of those crises we're seeing right now, which I think sort of exposes some of these tensions that we're talking about um, mm. because those same prisoners, those, those inmates who were fighting fires for a dollar an hour while they were in jail um, are called back in by the state to do those same jobs um, when the state is in its most dire need. Um, so I think this is a pretty nice transition into what's happening now with COVID. Um, and so it's a little different. There was one big New York times article um, that came out a couple weeks ago. Um, let's see if I can, it's called coronavirus limits, California's efforts to fight fires with prison labor by Thomas Fuller. Um, and I think uh, it does a pretty good job actually of um, kind of identifying these crises that we're getting at. Um, but it definitely does some disservice by romanticizing the job of putting out fires as a prisoner and, and highlight some of these um, prisoners experience, which is our valid of course. Um, uh, but I think sort of leans on them a little too heavy of um, a little bit of idealizing and romanticizing how, as you were talking about, giving a job that's rugged um, and giving a job that uh, gives you sort of an opportunity for uh, to be able to, to work and to be able to get back on your feet as a prisoner um, is mm -hmm. like renewing. Um, and I think it leans a little too heavily on some of those anecdotes. Um, but what it does do a good job of is talk about these crises. And so the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, actually released a lot of inmates um, during the pandemic who would have been deployed in response to the over 600 fires burning across California. Um, the state usually deploys up to 3,500 inmates to fight these fires. And this year only deployed about 1,300. Um, and, you know, this is, a, of course, it's, this is this is a good thing that Gavin Newsom did. Um, the conditions in detention centers and in prisons during COVID are like especially dramatic, especially terrible. Um, there's just like really tight crowding. Um, there's very poor sanitation to begin with. So it's really these, these detention centers are very prone to COVID outbreaks to begin with. So it's, it's a good thing that Gavin Newsom released all of these prisoners. Um, but um, you know, it showed that the state utterly relies on this prison labor to fight fires. Um, and especially when climate change compounds those and pushes these crises to sort of apocalyptic ends. Um, one spokesman for Cal fire, which is the state network um, of, of putting out California wildfires. So this is quoted in that New York times article. He says inmate fire crews are absolutely imperative to our ability to create hand line 
and do arduous work on our fires. Um, you know, and the governor's decision to release inmates who would have contributed to that effort has only sort of further exposed that dependency. Um, so in the wake of that decision, the state has been forced to call out other states, to call on other states to assist the response um, with the help of their own firefighters. Um, so California has called on Arizona, Nevada, uh, but they've also called on states like on the East Coast and as far as Australia <laughs> to help them in putting out these wildfires because they're so deeply, uh, they, have, they have such little capacity to do it on their own, especially without prison labor. Um, so I think we should call this what it is. It's, stakes, it's a state-sanctioned mutual aid, um, you know, and I don't, I don't mean it in the traditional sense of the word. Um, that's actually more radical and anarchist. I mean it in the sort of charitable, popularized, like GoFundMe version of mutual aid. Um, but <laughs> it's, I think, especially ironic um, when California, this is the state who for years has been threatening uh, to secede from the country and now sort of pushed to the edge in crisis is relying on Australia and like states in the East coast <laughs> for their firefighters to be able to put out these, these, uh, these blazes. Um, yeah. So I think it's, it's such, it's such a yeah. weird situation that is happening right now. You know, it's just, I mean, I'm, I mean, fortunately Romania is not going through one of those crises, so we don't have to deal with it, but it it just makes me think of the hypocrisy behind that, you know. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna leave aside a bit employing prison labor, but the fact that you cannot get them on the job afterwards, you know, you train them basically because I don't think you can just go into into like being a firefighter without training. Like maybe mm -hmm. yeah, you can hold something, but you don't really know what the tools do or anything like that. So you train mm -hmm. them, but afterwards right. you take the privilege and you rely on more prisoners. And, and, and it's just repeating itself. You know, I don't think it has the, the point of alleviating the conditions. It's just like, okay, we know there will be people like those. And no, and we don't necessarily think of decreasing the number of prisoners. But if that happens, you know, it will be bad. We'll have to rely on foreign labor from Australia. <laughs> but basically, yeah, let's keep relying on prison labor. That's the message right. I get from it. Exactly. And I think this utter incapacity to fight the fires um, without defending on the totally exploited prison labor, um, I think it's exposed these two crises for the state. Um, the first one is this moral crisis that you were touching on um, that's triggered by the sheer exploitation involved in paying prisoners less than a dollar an hour in many cases to do what is now exposed to be a very essential job. And I think this is a similar crisis that was exposed in the COVID epidemic in general when we realized that you know, teachers, nurses, uh, postal, post, post officers, you know, had to keep doing their work uninterrupted while, you know, white collar workers could sort of seamlessly transition to remote work. Um, so that's a moral crisis, which I think is especially triggered now um, after this like revolutionary summer um, with mm. calls for reform and, and revolution to the criminal justice system. Um, mm -hmm. So I think this is the first crisis. The second is uh, this crisis of austerity that's left the state um, basically with no public fire response. It's led them drastically underfunded. Um, and so in 2019, uh, Gavin Newsom was attempting to sort of slightly increase this budget. Uh, and at that time, 
Cal Fire had 31 fewer engines than it had in 1975. Um, while Meanwhile, it's responsible for more land, more cities, and drier conditions due to 50 years of increasing climate change. Uh, so it's exposing this sort of deep uh, public underfunding of these like essential services, um, which is pushing them to rely on totally exploitative prison labor. Um, <laughs> and so this is a pretty right. I I, I don't I, I don't have a conclusion that's uh, that's exactly optimistic, um, but you know it's my hope that that these crises are so uh, are, are are so drastic are pushing to the edge, especially compounding with the climate crisis um, that hopefully they'll force folks to realize that something else has to budge. Um, yeah, I do, I do hope so. I do really hope so. I just hope that, you know, I'm a believer in crisis personally. I believe that crisis hold a lot of potential. I don't necessarily think we should avoid crisis uh, in all of their extents. And I think this is maybe a, a good final wake up call, you know, like nature and society is telling us wake up like really now, otherwise you're going to be doomed to fall asleep for the rest of your life. But one aspect that's really like I think we must touch upon is the fact that there's such a huge private sector like uh, firefighters in California. Mm. And it, that to me seems like the grim future that might be appearing. It might come as one, you, you know, for example, AC is not, is not a public good. The internet is mm. not a public good, yet so many of us use it. it you know, it's, almost, it's, it's not in all houses, but it's something that we understand it's so beneficial to our work, at least the internet. And what if we're going to end up with privatized firefighters to be the case in California, to think the same as the internet? It will be a fee of $500 we'll have to pay every month, $750 during July and August, and $1,000 you know, during peak season, maybe. Mm-hmm. And people will just like accept it. We'll just tacitly go into it. And, and then when an alternative, you know, and a fight for public firefighters will come, they'll be like, oh, finally. But it has always been there. That has been the way the public, you know, that has been the way they worked for such a long time. And it looks like they disappeared and they're coming back as something new. No, we already had this concept. So many con- countries have this concept. And maybe exactly. we should turn back to, to more public spending for those people, really. Exactly. Yeah. And that's something Mike Davis touches on a lot. And uh, he's got a pretty famous essay that he wrote, I think, in the 90s. I'm going to I'm gonna botch that date. But it's it's pretty great. It's called the case for letting Malibu burn. Um, and it really gets to this issue of private, um, firefighting because, um, it's more of an environmental and political argument, obviously, but, um, he's talking about how there's all of these developments, um, that have been built on the coast in Malibu, just sort of adjacent to Los Angeles. Um, which like should, just should never ecologically have been built there because the landscape can't support uh, that kind of development uh, without it going through natural cycles of burning. Um, and so when that inevitably happens, um, those residents are able to call in those private firefighters. Um, and in some cases, these public mutual aid networks of firefighters like Cal Fire are actually called in to fight those fires um, right. So what we have here is literally prison labor fighting fires for multimillionaires whose houses should not have been built in these coastal areas in the beginning. So, okay. yeah, I, 
it spells out this crisis pretty clearly <laughs> in that picture. Okay. Um, well, so the problem is not as simple as simple as people think, you know. It's so complicated. I think it has like roots, like tentacles. It's like spread all over the place because I think from that you could very easily jump into the idea of taxation and Silicon Valley and and maybe even like just the entrepreneurial spirit of the Silicon Valley and how it can be destructive in some cases and how maybe in 50 years we're going to find a Silicon Valley person that will come up with the idea, let's privatize the firefighters and call them fire. <laughs> Dot. With, an, you know, with a not, Y, like F-Y-R, like fire festival. <laughs> festival. And they'll come with this revolution. I mean, this is a little burden. We're destroying other Silicon Valley people. I just find it funny sometimes to use those stereotypes about them. I hope they don't get offended by this. Just no, I, I mean, it's it's totally real. It's totally real. Yeah, it, it can happen. That This is the fa- this is the fact we've seen it for so long. And, and we do not know where this will going to lead. But I think California, you know, like I would love to devote, I don't know, like even a series to it because California is this, you know, someone, I'll, I'll make a bit of a parallel. So a couple, one week ago, there came this graph about Bucharest, Bucharest being the capital city of Romania, having the GDP larger than many countries in the Balkan area. So our GDP, I think, is larger than Slovenia, than Croatia, than many countries, you know, in this fascinating, it's Bucharest, it's a town. It, mm-hmm. it has like 2 million people, but it's huge. Right. And I was just thinking of that with the same with California. If I'm not mistaken, California has the fifth biggest GDP in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This state is not really a country. Okay, they have the movement for independence, but it's just right. a state. And that was just so fascinating because it's such a living paradox. You don't really know how to approach it. You know, you, you try to purchase a state, maybe as a collection of big cities, you know, San Francisco or the Bay Area and all Los Angeles, San Diego and all of those. But at the same time, it's so big. It has so much happening in there. And where can you just point the fingers, you know, for all those problems that are happening? You know, because I don't think the problem is that simple to just blame it on, okay, we need to stop using plastic. Okay, we need to stop. We need to tell the people in Silicon Valley, (laughs) stop doing this. We need to fund this more. I think it's just such an interconnection of all these factors that it's even so hard sometimes to think of them all. Definitely. Definitely. And it's factors that go beyond the state boundaries itself. And I think oh, yeah. members of the state would like to believe that they're powerful enough. And obviously they have a lot of resources. They have a huge economy, huge population. But um, I think those those members would like to believe that they can rely at sort of on themselves um, to, to be independent. Uh, but there's so many things that are connected to these other states, other countries. And I think um, relying on other other states for for wildfire assistance it's a pretty it's a pretty clear example of that it's true it's true and i think i think it's just such a big mystery to many of us california because i maybe we'll have the chance once to talk about um the way people think of labor in california because uh i have never lived in california i've, I've never mm-hmm. stepped foot actually in california but we mostly hear the voices from hollywood beverly hills San Francisco, but the programmers living in San Francisco, <laughs> and maybe some creative agencies, you know, those are the workers we hear about. Like right. those voices right. are like most represented in the media. And then we don't necessarily hear about, you know, all the people that do the dirty work for those because there haven't yet been invented robots that clean the entire house. <laughs> those people need someone to clean their house. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. I mean, there's a lot of work that's actually been done right in about... Um, this this 
it's it's been a divide, especially in the Bay Area, for a very long time between the burgeoning tech and industrial computer technical manufacturing industries. Uh, and meanwhile, the agricultural industries, Silicon Valley, the Santa Clara Valley, actually was originally home in the 19th century to a lot of uh, orchards, fruit fruit producing areas. Um, then, um, sort of early 20th century uh, and mid 20th century. Uh, it became more industrial and the computer industries popped up. But obviously that whole time um, there was this sort of underclass of service workers, uh, janitorial staff uh, and, and, and and so many kinds of workers and huge immigrant populations, probably mostly, mostly immigrant from, um, from parts of East Asia, from uh, Central America. um, But it's it's been this persistent kind of tension in in the Bay Area, especially. Um, but it's also ironic because uh, the San Francisco was home originally to the fight for the eight hour workday in uh, the eighteen forties or fifties. I, I don't know exactly on that one, but yeah, they, they won that battle originally in uh, sort of an industrial factory in the mid nineteenth century. Um, but since then, uh, California has made it uh at least the at least silicon valley in that culture has made it pretty much impossible to unionize um unions were very strong in the early 20th century um and uh since silicon valley and the tech kind of creative economy the sort of like uh the sort of these slippery terms like um like uh i'm trying to I'm trying to think of what they call them like uh basically the workers who are working different jobs. Um, but there's, there's a way to romanticize that. I'm, I'm forgetting what they call them, but, um, basically as that picked up, it's pretty much impossible to unionize in Silicon Valley. Um, so well, actually I need, I need to give some credits. I think we have like, let's say five minutes, but I, I must say two things and then we can go with some ending remarks. One sure. of them, a, a book recommendation, since we talked about the lovely story and Mike Davis city of courts, just read it this yeah. summer. It's a book about Los Angeles. It's, it's just about a, a little portion of California, but it's so important because it's Mexico fight for eight hours. And Los Angeles appeared as this city that was not San Francisco. Maybe I'm exaggerating a bit in my description, but San Francisco was a city known for its unionization because of the port and all the other workers there. Los Angeles was not a city of unionization. Los Angeles was a city where you could work your workers more than eight hours. And right. where there was not necessarily a contract or a collective bargaining contract or anything like that. And apart from that, there is actually, I participated into something very beautiful organized by an NGO in Romania. I would love to give them a shout out as well. Kersh Sociala, which literally means social housing now. It's an NGO where a friend of mine is working, Alex. Shout out to Alex for this. And they brought up a bunch of professors in this discussion about social housing. And one of them was saying this idea of neoliberalism. And he gave a bit of a historical background, you know, appearing as an ideology of, 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 you know, very strong individualism with Thatcher, Reagan, and others as such. But where it manifests itself the most is actually even nowadays, where you have those cities that are almost impossible to leave, impossible to leave, you know, San Francisco, uh, I don't know, Manhattan, Manhattan, New York City, you know, Cluj-Napoca in Romania, which is the Silicon Valley of, of Eastern Europe, actually considered by some to be. You don't have if you don't have the right money for it, you don't leave. But there is such a 
competition to it that people get you know thrown into this game of I must make that money it's my dream you know I must survive I must work for it. I must I must fight for it and there's such a romanticization of it because the moment you reach that you feel like I finally conquered it I've done it you know it's me it's me who did it yet there are so many of us that fail behind and can't even afford to buy a coffee in town because of its huge price. You know, it's like huge, the price of a coffee. I don't know in San Francisco, but in Cluj, Romania, it's like huge. You know, you, have, you would have to pay, you would have to pay, I don't know, like five bucks or something at some places, which is like yeah. something that's not known for us. I would just actually True. go in 10 minutes and get a coffee from downstairs, from a little vending machine, 50 cents. You know, you know, that's the price compared to five dollars. Exactly. It's just crazy how neoliberalism just affects and makes out of us, you know, because you're saying that thing with people working a variety of jobs, you know, trying all of these jobs, you know, maybe even working more jobs, where like dedicating themselves so much to work. It's this idea developed by neoliberalism, you know? I'm in mm -hmm. the city, in the city, I must make it and I'll do everything I, mu I must to do to get it. Maybe they exactly. get it, but not all of them do it. Exactly. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's a really nice way to tie it all together. Um, well, do you have any any other closing remarks, Doc? I I really appreciate that new segment you gave us. Um, it was a it was a nice way to like think back on this Thank week. So same with the California welfare. It's extremely good research. I actually did not know about a lot of the things there, and it's it's always so refreshing to learn about a bit more about the U.S. because I have never left the East Coast. Yeah. So totally, I'm stuck in this bubble that's still very English <laughs> in many ways, and I'd like to go to the far western parts of it maybe one day. Yeah, shout out to my dad's family. He's uh, from Sacramento, California. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, shout out to his family being from Sacramento. <laughs> that is lovely. <laughs> shout out to my family from being from Southern Romania and from my mother for being uh, a labor unionist, trade unionist. Let's go like this. <laughs> Let's go. Okay, man. Um, I think we should call it a night. I'm so sorry. Today we have to end it a bit early. I would have loved to talk more, but I must go somewhere. Great. The night totally. is calling me. But <laughs> you want to give some thank you to the people that were listening to us? Hopefully someone was listening to us. This is what Hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, yeah, totally. Big big shout out. I know it's the first first one. We haven't even had any guests yet. Um, but we're workshopping everything, um, including our title, which hopefully we will have by the next time. By next time. <laughs> it's a work in progress. That's at the end of the day. Right. And this will never be finished. But have a good night, Stock. Good to see have you. Have a good, good night, everyone. Have a good night, Micah. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, we said we were unnamed, but I guess we're left porch at the end of the day. Thank you so much for listening to us. It was a pleasure having you on board. And don't forget to share the podcast to your friends. The more people have on our platform, the more voices we represent, the better we'll make this world. We are designed and crafted in Maine, but fucking internationalists. Thank you. Thank you.